Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. Hey, if you're listening to this and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribe with your email address, make sure you do that today. That is the best, simplest, and easiest way to make sure we don't lose contact and you always get the latest piece of Better Sense Making delivered right to your inbox. Yes, I know. It's been a bit since the last episode. June was a very busy month. Uh, moved, new new responsibilities with the main hustle. So it's been a bit, but we're back. Grinding out the content, sharing better sense making with the masses. That's what I'm here to do. That's the idea, right? And that's why you tune in. And so thank you very much for everyone who has stayed subscribed. And more importantly, for the people who have... Um, Picked up premium membership during this dearth of the podcast. Still been writing, still been releasing other content. Gone on a lot of other people's shows recently too. So if you go to binawake.com slash appearances, you can always find my uh you can always find my appearances on other people's shows. I really like promoting that page because I really like promoting other people who are doing this whole podcasting thing. I think it's fun. Um, you know, obviously this is something I'm very passionate about, and I love to be able to share that passion not only with other with people who enjoy consuming the content but people who enjoy producing the content as well. So today's episode been a bit coming, right? There's been a lot, certainly a lot of news that I've, that I'm going to maybe kind of get into as we go throughout today's show that maybe wasn't covered. uh, You know, maybe I should have covered a few weeks ago, but I think I figured out a nice way to weave a lot of the big storylines together in a question. And that of today's episode, this is episode six of the show who wins in a democracy? It's kind of an interesting, I I think, I think it's a worthwhile and interesting question for us to ask and for us to talk about who wins in a democracy. That's, that's what people say we live in after all, right? That's what people like that. That's what people like Nancy Pelosi and people like Joe Biden say, this is about our democracy. The people on the media in the CNN and the corporate, in the corporate press, this is about our democracy. So who wins in a democracy? Obviously, somebody has to win, or else it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a game worth playing. You can take that as literally or as figuratively as you want. It's still pretty much it stays pretty accurate. If democracy wasn't a game worth playing, people wouldn't be playing it. We wouldn't have if there was no benefit. It wouldn't it wouldn't occur. So the question is, who benefits? Who benefits? Who loses? So I'm, I I think I picked a, an interesting path for us to explore this idea today. And in fact, you might think, you might think that our first topic is off that beaten path, and you'd be right a little bit. So the first segment uh, that we're going to go over here with the story is about human behavior and pit bulls. Now, this was inspired because I saw an article recently. Um, I saw an article recently in the, in the New York Post about pit bulls, about about a woman who was attacked by her pit bull. Right. And so that's kind of what that's kind of what's that's kind of what inspired it. I read the story. I was like, oh, I can predict. I'm pretty sure I can predict the different stages of this story. Turns out I was right. So that's going to be one of the reasons why 
we go through this piece. And, and I also wanted to go through this piece because I, it kind of struck me of like, what is, you know, is the news, the, is the news politics is the news, the weather? No, it's, it's the news stories like this. And it's the news or what we think of traditionally as the news is kind of like all of these things, right? It's a fluff piece. It's fluff pieces like this or like interesting, horrible, horrible graphic stories like this that don't necessarily, uh, well, they fit into some larger conversations, but they, this isn't this isn't necessarily one of the biggest stories out there. So, you know, so it might be interesting. You might think weird that I'm leading with it, but one of the reasons why I wanted to examine this story in particular is what what way are they telling the story? So we're going to tell the story the way that it was written. And then, you know, I'm going to tell the story, and you're going to see a little bit more of what I mean when I talk about how we examine, how we examine things and, and the perspective that we put them in. So starting from the New York Post, it says, Taya Lucas, 41, was at home in Louisville, Texas, introducing her new puppy, Rue, to her friend Peter, 33, on May 16th, when her nearly 100-pound pit bull, Hercules, violently turned on her. Reps for the Louisville De Police Department confirmed to the Post. So this is the lead, right? This is the beginning of the, of the piece that I'm quoting here. And the way traditionally you're supposed to write a news story is you give as much information in the first couple of paragraphs as you can. And in fact, your first, your, your first paragraph is supposed to have all the pertinent facts. So the pertinent facts here is that her new puppy was introduced to her friend and that new puppy, who was a 100-pound pit bull, you might be able to detect some some incredulity in my voice already, but the nearly 100-pound pit bull new puppy Hercules violently turned on her and her friend, as, as, the story will, as the story will talk about. Now, as we, you know, if we want to talk a little bit more about this story, um, if we want to talk a little bit more about this story, it was we kind of go through what you're going to, you, you read the piece, and what you see is that it's it's a really it's a really nasty story. Uh, this poor woman was really mauled by this dog, and so was her friend. Right? There's, I mean, if you, I have the piece linked in the show notes. Of course, if you go to binawake.com, you can find those. Always, always try to make sure I link. You can see some of the pictures. She, this poor woman had to have six different surgeries. You know, hours underneath the knife. It said she was on a ventilator for multiple days when she first went to the hospital. So I want. I mean, so. This poor person, this poor woman was attacked, and it's, and it's very sad that it happened to her because as we read the story, you're going to see that she was trying to do the right thing. They clearly tried to do the right thing, but as you read through the piece and you kind of get to the end of it because they go through excruciating details, all the different surgeries that happened to her and, all the, and, and, the, and the carnage that ensued, right? So she tells, so the way she told the story to the Post, at least, is that she was introducing her, this dog, Hercules, to her friend, and the dog hopped on the couch. And when the dog hopped on the couch, her friend said, her friend said to get down and verbally and perhaps tried to physically move her. And then the story says that she tried to physically move the dog. And it was at that time that the dog attacked her friend. And it was, and she said there was blood all over the place. And then she said she tried to pull the dog off of her and then throw the dog into the into the bedroom. Or not, I think she said she threw the dog into the bathroom, but then when she opened the door, the dog then attacked her. 
it's a pretty again pretty pretty dang gruesome then at the, at this point her daughter and her husband showed up it turns out that it's the daughter and husband's dog and they tried to they tried to pull the dog off they were somewhat successful and then a police officer arri- arrived they were able to separate them the dog off they were able to give life saving care to the woman involved before she went to the hospital and again spent many days on a ventilator well, so you keep reading this story, and as you move through, you know, she says, I don't know how many times he bit me, right? That's that's really the crux of this story, but this is what struck out to me. As you read through, you see Tana and Harley, those are that's her daughter and her daughter's husband, found Hercules abandoned at the side of the road, covered in cigarette burns two years earlier. That's Two years now. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had, I'm a dog person. I grew up with dogs. I love dogs. And I've, I'll always call my dog my puppy. You know what I mean? Even even though one of my dogs is is like 13 years old right now, he's still my puppy. And he'll always be my puppy because he's a good dog, right? <laughs> and so, of course, but for the news story, when we started, when we said we were, when we said we were giving people information, they started by saying it was a puppy. Now, I don't know if I consider a dog who was at least three years old a puppy. So that's kind of weird. So, but it, but it speaks to how they. It speaks. That was probably something done in editing, because the because pu- when you say puppy, it it it, it creates more intrigue to a story. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Why is a puppy attacking somebody in such a gruesome manner? But, you know, of course, the dog might be new to her, right, as, a, as I think the case in the story is. But they called it a puppy in the beginning, and I thought that was a little disingenuous, especially when you find out that the dog was found two years earlier. Now, one thing when I saw this piece was I was like, oh, this, this was probably a rescue dog. And, and in fact, it was, I was proven correct. The, now, by all accounts, what they did was so they found this dog on the side of the road, and they took it in. And they cared for it, and they cared for it as best as possible. And by their own admission, there hadn't been too many issues with aggression or anything like that until this moment. Until you keep reading the piece, <laughs> right? Because they go through multiple times. He slept with me every single night, or he, he would sleep with me, no problem. Blah, 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 blah. Well, you rescued a dog off the side of the road that was covered in cigarette burns. What kind of rehabilitation did you do? Did you get the dog, did you get the dog evaluated by a behavioral specialist? You don't know what that dog, uh, clearly the dog was abused because you can tell because anybody who would burn a dog with cigarettes probably would do worse things to that same dog. But according to Taya, who's, but according to Taya, who's a woman, said that Hercules never shown, had never shown signs of aggression before and even slept in bed with her the night before the attack. And then she, and then quoting her, he was never aggressive before. I heard him bark one time when something made him jump, Taya said. I have no idea why this happened. He slept in bed with us. I don't know what triggered him. But the next sentence, and the next sentence, though, this is, and this is, I thought this was kind of interesting. She noted that Hercules was beginning to display food aggression, and she had begun to think aspects about him that were changing and showing possible signs of his aggression. That's, that's one of the last paragraphs in the piece. Now, again, food aggression is one thing, right? It's not necessarily linked to, to people or that, but it does show that the dog isn't completely mentally stable. Dogs can be relatively pleasant and still, and, and still have signs of aggression because they're animals. And that's one of the reasons why training a dog is super important. 
it's also, I think this is, I think it's analogous to a lot of other conversations that we might have in a political space or what have you, because we're talking about behavior. And with animals, in, when, when we have pets, we want them to be well-trained. And so we do that. We train them as well as we can. And training them teaches them that there are certain standards and, and behaviors that they must abide by, both listen, you know, in terms of listening to command, but maybe also what furniture you're allowed or not allowed on. Now, and anything, now, here's, now here's the rub. Just like a human, right? just like most animals, the first few years, the first year of life especially, the first few months of a dog's life, the first year of a dog's life, is very, is, is very influential on the rest of its life. And if a dog is introduced to violence at a young age, it might respond with violence in kind because that aggression is, is, is provoked out of them. Provoked out of them. That's a weird way of saying, that's, that's, a weird, that's a weird turn of phrase. What I'm trying to get at is, it makes, it makes sense that if, that if an animal is abused or if a human is abused in their youth, that they would have different reaction. They would have an adverse reaction to any kind of abuse in the future. Now, one thing that was really interesting to me when I read this piece was that they hadn't gone through any, so I didn't, they didn't report any sort of behavioral channels. But like I said, these people were clearly trying to do the right thing. And by all accounts, it seems like they treated this dog well. Now, what's, the, what's one of the big stories looming around this? Of course, it's the fact that a lot of people consider pit bulls dangerous. And I think it has a lot more to do with the type of person who will get a pit bull and not train it properly. See, one of the interesting things about dogs is how long humans have spent with them, right? We've, we've, had, we've had domesticated dogs going all the way back to hunter-gatherer days in humanity. And in fact, we have bred dogs into being many different things. We've bred them to being our protectors, our guards, our companions, our lap, just something to kind of sit in our lap. So, you know, or to go after vermin, so on and so forth. And one thing I one thing I bemoan about the modern day, or maybe not the modern day, but every day, I bemoan people who don't take into consideration the type of breed they get for a dog before they get it. Why? Because it matters. Clearly in a story like, and we see that displayed in a story like this. I don't really, I mean, clearly the dog, I mean, the dog was euthanized, of course, because he, he viciously attacked two humans. But we don't know what happened, you know, but, but, but the point is to say we don't actually know what happened to this dog beforehand. And yet, how is the story presented to us? How is a story like this presented to us with a clickbait title that's generated to try and make you read it? Because, because it is interesting and gruesome and, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And here I am covering it. But one of the interesting, one, one of the things about it was that, oh, it was, it was a very predictable story. As you kind of move through the piece, it's like, oh, there's another piece of information. It turns out it wasn't a puppy. The first trigger, by the way, was a 100-pound puppy. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty big dog. And so if it's a puppy, and I really think of a puppy, and I would think most dog people think of a puppy as like one to two years old. Really, by the end of the first year, he's, he's a little bit more than a puppy. He's like a young dog at that point. But if you're talking about a dog that you've had for at least two years, and you don't know how old it was when you got it, well, that's, that's like a dog. That's not a puppy anymore. And yet, 
you were, again, to make the story a little more sexy, they started by saying that. And I guess probably what they were hoping is that people wouldn't read the piece closely. And either way, once you click it, you get, you get the points, right? As I said at the beginning of this segment, I wanted to kind of touch upon like what, what way we tell stories. Because see, a way that I could tell this story, if I was just going to come in clean and not do the analysis, I would say as well, another dog owner who probably didn't do a good job of training beforehand. Or, or, better, or better said, that they understood, but that the friend didn't. Now, most of the time with dogs, the stakes aren't that high in that regard because they're generally friendly and deferential to people. But when you have specific kinds of breeds, like pit bulls, there are certain kinds of breeds of dog, like pit bulls, that are designed as protectors. And, when, and that means that they are far more they are far more bonded with their, with, their, with their initial group than with other humans. So they're only going to listen to a select core of people. They're going to listen to a select core of people, and when somebody else gives them an order and maybe goes after them aggressively, they're going to react because they think that something bad is happening. Especially, again, in the case where a dog's covered in freaking cigarette burns. I wouldn't be surprised if there was other things. A lot of dogs react negatively to hats, that's certainly, I've experienced that before, somebody who wears a lot of hats. A lot of dogs will react negatively to hats. Sometimes dogs react negatively to um, facial hair on men in particular, and probably because a lot of times when you're dealing with rescue dogs and dogs that have been abused, they've been probably abused by a man. So you see that a lot too, is that there are dogs that have more of an aver rescue dogs that have more of an aversion to men than to other people, or than to women, I should say, excuse me. But the new pup, so the new puppy, right? It's this is this is the weird way. This is like this weird, and the other reason why I wanted to talk about this piece is because a story like this, I think, is fading out. And the way that I told the story the second time is is coming in. I think that's what the opportunity of you know a broad market of uh, media consumption allows for, even even if even if a lot of the legacy systems are um, legacy systems at the top still suck <laughs> for lack of a better term. So the next thing I wanted to move into on today's show is what's going on in Sri Lanka. What's going on Sri Lanka? What's happening? I don't know if you if you haven't seen it then I then I want to make sure I start at the beginning or not at the beginning but just so that you understand like the main crux of this recently Within the last, you know, I'm, I'm recording this on, on September. I'm recording this on July 23rd. And, and recently that the, 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 the government in Sri Lanka was overthrown. The president escaped the country. He had to flee. And there's, a, there's now a new prime minister and a new president. And it had to do with, it, it was in conjunction with mass pro protests about the country's peril and lack of basic supplies and energy. And unlike in the U.S., they literally did storm their government buildings, as we'll see with a with a video here in a minute. So this this so this was like some pretty pretty powerful footage. That's how I originally discovered it. And then there's an interesting there's an interesting tie-in to some of the um, broader things that are going on, we might say, in today's society. So if you haven't seen it, and by the way, if you're listening to the audio, this video is available on YouTube and it will, and it is also available on Rumble and I live stream to the, to the Twitter as well. So, you know, there's a few different ways if you want, 
that you can actually engage with the video aspects of this uh, of, of this video. Sorry, that was, I'm like trying to pull up a screen right now, which is why I'm not doing a good job of broadcasting. So the first, so I, the, so the first, the first thing is really, really interesting to watch this video of them actually going against the presidential palace. I mean, you see thousands of people, and they are literally running into the presidential palace. So I believe, and I think and in the show notes, I think I talked about this in terms of the Capitol, but this is far more closely probably to them storming the White House. Now, from what I could tell, this had a lot to do with the fact that this particular president was considered part of a, uh, you know, a very entrenched political family who was, uh, you know, who was who had been in power for a long time. And so you also saw this video that I'll play quickly here of him. If you watch, you see the guy he's literally running onto some sort of military ship with uh, with some luggage. Just fascinating to see. Right? Now, we don't... Now, here's the thing. Sri Lanka isn't as stable a government as the U.S., and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to point it out. But there's another reason in particular I wanted to point it out, and this was an article that, um, this was, an article that was circling around recently that I feel should be covered more. Or it should be talked about a little bit in the context of the conversations we have here about how the world is changing. In 2015, a member of the Sri Lankan government wrote, Our economic policy, Vision 2025, is firmly embedded in several principles, including a social market economy that delivers economic dividends to all. In the first place, we need to ensure we have a skill pool that matches the job market's demands. Sri Lanka's education system is being transformed through progressive, interesting, and important policy reform. The minimum length of schooling has been increased to 13 years, while better education is being brought to rural areas through the nearest school is the best school program. And Sri Lanka is investing in more teachers and better training. Also, opportunities for vocational training in selected areas during school education will be introduced. Further, we have taken action to empower new and innovative ideas by strengthening the intellectual property regime in Sri Lanka. The plan, the plan for an empowered Sri Lanka identifies the priorities of raising incomes, ensuring employment and housing for all, and improving the quality of life for all citizens. That all sounds very nice. And if you're uninitiated into the world of political rhetoric, you might think that that sounds like some pretty boilerplate stuff. Now, what matters is the context in which that speech was delivered. And of course, now this is just, this is just a segment of it, right? You can actually... Um, it's it's a much much broader piece that the uh, that the guy wrote. Hmm. I'll have to make sure I link to that because I just have the quote here. This was given in during a World Economic Forum, uh, their their big event that they have every year in Davos. This that's a fact, by the way, and the person who gave this speech is that was at the time the prime minister guy by the name okay apparently the name didn't save in my notes um sorry the guy by i i, I want to make sure i do do things correctly ranil week rem rem sing rem sing ranil 
So Ranil was the prime minister in 2015, minister in 2022. So in 2015, he said the world. He said that Sri Lanka was going to join the world. See the piece that was originally published by the World Economic Forum. They've since taken it down, um, and then but it was also published in the Times, which is where I grabbed it. Times of London, I believe was talking about all the ways in which he was he was going to change Sri Lanka for the better. And a lot of that had to do with Sri Lanka embracing a globalist mentality. And globalism, not in the standpoint of we're just going to trade with people, but globalism in the standpoint of we're going to figure out the two things our economy can do well, and then we're going to just buy the rest of the things. See, the economic principle at play there is specialization. And specialization works pretty dang well when you have free trade and no interruption in the supply chain. So you have, so my understanding is there was investment done throughout Sri Lanka that basically made them dependent on a lot of other places. And then when those supply chains break down as what ha as, as happened during the lockdowns during the pandemic, that interruption of goods hurts people in their bottom pocket. It led to massive unemployment and massive protests in that country. Led by this guy, Ranil, right? So the president, right? That's like the highest office, but the prime minister is the one who's running the government and implementing these policies. And in 2025, that was the idea. By 2025, Sri Lanka was going to be a much better nation. And now they've overthrown their, pre their president has had to run for his life. And so you might say, well, good riddance to him. He was clearly corrupt. He was probably was, but don't you see the people, the people were the pot, the people, the populists, the people were rising up against the government. That's a good thing. You might say that, but guess who's the president now? Ranil, the guy who was the prime minister. See, he refused to step down in response to the protests. And now he's the president of the country. He was just elected. Talk about failing upward. This guy is the one who said that the policies that he was going to be implementing since 2015 was going to make Sri Lanka a better place. And then in 2022, with their economy on the brink of collapse, he gets a promotion. Now, who's the new prime minister? His name is Dinesh. His last name is Gunawardena. Gunawardena? I don't know. But his first name is Dinesh. Now, here's an interesting thing about Dinesh. He was, he's a hardcore leftist. In fact, it says here in this article I found from the Indian Express, because it, it was apparently has some connection to, the, in, to India as well. He says, they say, who is Dinesh? And they say, a political old timer. He is the leader of the Trotskyist majority nationalist Maha, Mahajana Exeth per, Paramuna. Probably should have practiced those words before we did this episode. Which is a constituent party of Sri Lanka's ruling Sri Lanka Pan, Pan, Pandujana Paramuna. So you got the guy who's in bed with the World Economic Forum, who's been implementing a lot of the policy changes that led to the collapse, has now been promoted to president, and a hardcore leftist is the prime minister. Now, perhaps it is populism if we're going to define populism as democracy against the elites. But what's interesting is that the elites are still at the top, aren't they? Now, this leads very well 
So I think this, and, and so I think this is something, so this leads very well into the next question that I want to ask in today's episode. That question is, are the bad guys anti-fragile? Are the bad guys anti-fragile? Now, of course, we might, it, I should probably, uh, I should probably define, I should define what, what it means to be anti-fragile before we, before we move too far on. So the, the simplest definition, I like simple definitions, is something that does not merely withstand a shock, but actually improves because of it. And this term has risen to prominence in political discourse largely because of the perceived and realistic fragility that's displayed in the larger victim morality. Where we've, if, by the way, if you're, if you're not familiar with these terms, you definitely got to go back and listen to past episodes because I've, co I've covered this idea of victim morality before. The simplest way to explain it is you take honor, an honor-based culture, and you invert it. And now you have a culture based around victimhood. Specific reasons for why this has been instantiated we can get into maybe another time. But at the very least, we can understand that if something is anti-fragile, it not only withstands a shock, but gets better because of it. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this topic has to do with a recent appearance I made on the Kingpilled show, which you can go and check out. Uh, it's linked in the show notes page. And of course, if you go to beenawake.com slash appearances, you can also find my appearance, my other appearances on the Kingpilled show as well. And Matt Erickson and I were, were talking about a piece that was written. And the piece had to do with this post-libertarian idea that I've spent a good deal of time talking about and trying to figure out a bit myself. So we kind of decided to, to talk about it because we weren't sure that the guy really understood who we were because even though we don't like the term, it's still what when people say it, they're talking about us. So we went through and we kind of talked about his piece. And one thing in particular, one objection he had or one, one characterization he had is that the cathedral was the what was it the he said that it wasn't a very the the cathedral was let's see here the cathedrals has defensive weakness and what what was the term he used it had low vitality meaning it cannot continue to exist for very long now what is the cathedral well well in the small little part of the internet that i'm in the cathedral is a term that was coined by a guy who wrote under the name Mentris Molbug and today goes by his given name of Curtis Yarvin. I've talked about him before, but I'll also briefly here define the cathedral as quoted for his book. Oh, this is this is a full thing. Um I'm trying to read a piece that I wrote. So the cathedral is basically the 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 cathedral as as under constructed by Mentor Smolbug is the decentralized method of it's the decentralized institution of social control that we that we live under in the United States and the world broadly speaking because the United States can be thought of as 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 the as one of the imperial powers of of the modern day. And what the, and the, the cathedral is the loose coalition that exists between universities, media institutions and the government. And they're generally united. I would, I would argue, this is me departing from a specific mold bug definition, I would generally argue they operate under a progressive, which is a derivation of liberal form of government. Now, 
one thing that happens to a term, one thing that happens to a term is that it can kind of expand, especially as it moves farther and farther away from the original text. That's why I wanted to read this piece. So I so I wrote this piece actually. When did I write this? I wrote this la I wrote this in January of 2021. It takes about 17 pages when you read a gentle, a gentle introduction to unqualified reservations to understand what the author means when he discusses the cathedral. What I'm going to endeavor to do is give you the basic understanding of how I use the term and why I think it's useful. I don't know that I agree with all of Yarvin's conclusions about the proper ordering of society, but I have found him to be an interesting person or a misfit reactionary, as he might call himself at times. He's also the one who uses the red pill allegory, which I believe illuminates an important and necessary divide to understanding reality. So first off, the cathedral definition has almost nothing to do with the Catholic Church's hierarchy or the building itself. It does, however, have to do with the idea of church. Being raised Catholic as I am, I, find that, I found that difficult to overcome at first. Because when I think of the word cathedral, I think of the beauty in, in Catholic cathedrals. I've, I've endeavored to illuminate why and how power centers use words to influence and manipulate the general population. Chief amongst these powers centers are the government, universities, and media, broadly speaking, including Hollywood and the news. This is what I and others are talking about when we discuss the cathedral. The cathedral, in a very real sense, is the church that promotes the cult of American democracy. They are the ones who say what the respectable opinions ought to be. They are the papers of record, the power brokers in Congress, and the producer working with the CIA to produce a film. As stated, however, this is entirely unlike the Catholic Church because by its nature, it, it, has, it does not have a natural hierarchy. Instead, the dogma is churned in the various heads of academics and spoon-fed into naive 18-year-olds until they dye their hair blue and tattoo their face. Members of both political parties are part of the cathedral. The red pill, as I've discussed before, has nothing to do with the colors adopted by America's ruling duopoly, a.k.a. being red pill does not mean that you vote Republican. As a skeptic, I, I, finishing the piece, I endeavor to hold these institutions of power to account the only way I know how through the use of reason and research. I have a natural aversion to dogmatic thinking, and what the cathedral does is generate the dogma you cannot stray from in polite society. So that's what the cathedral is. But one of the things that's occurring right now because of the speed at which ideas and uh, ideas progress or evolve, we might say, due to the internet, is that people tend to just use the cathedral, I feel, as, as like this general placeholder for the bad guys. And that's why, that's why I didn't say, is the cathedral anti-fragile? Or are the elites anti-fragile? I just said, are the bad guys anti-fragile? Because I think that's what most people were reacting to. See, it wasn't just the author of the piece. A couple other people gave that same feedback, that they thought that no, in fact, the cathedral, or the elites, the ruling class, were not anti-fragile. The libs, we might say. Are the libs anti-fragile? Well, I think... I think we can look at the story of Sri Lanka to see an example of precisely how that anti-fragility works. See the guy responsible, not the only guy, but one of the guys who had a position of authority over, over people who was responsible for instituting the policies that eventually led to the modern collapse. And yes, I know other things happened too. But see, 
while we have had problems here in the United States, our economy is still relatively strong to where now you're now you know we've dealt with shortages of certain items in certain places, but by and large, you can get what you need to survive in the United States. My understanding is that's not what Sri Lanka is like now, which is why, which is why the people stormed the presidential palace. But what was the result of that? One president out, another president in. That president who came in was the former prime minister who was instituting the policies to begin with. That's an example of how, of how the bad guys, if you will, are anti-fragile because they still remain strong. They actually, and you could even argue they, get, they might be stronger because of it. Sounds like this is going to be a real hef, a heavy left-wing government in charge of Sri Lanka. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't pretend to be so sophisticated to understand exactly what that means for geopolitics, but I'm sure it doesn't mean health and happiness for the people of that country. That's just my, and maybe that's just my opinion. I could be proven wrong. So I think one of, so, so what I hope is clear here is we can use, there are terms de jour, there are terms of the age, right? Of like certain of a zeitgeist, which is a Hegelian term of spirit for spirit of the age. There are certain terms that are unique to particular points in time. And I think it's better if we use, if we think of the, something like the cathedral as that. So the cathedral is a, a more recent interpretation of what we might agree is some kind of eternal battle. Because the, the eternal battle of good and evil is evil fighting the good. Right, it's the idea that evil has to fight for fight to overcome the good, or we might say the bad, right? So, and then we have that conflation of bad and evil. So, I think this is, and I think this is important because we do this a lot, and the reason why people do this a lot is because, well, in, in part, is because it's 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 a lot easier. So, I already have a concept that I know. Doesn't matter if a lot of other people know it, I know it, and so I'm going to use it a lot of the times. And that's one of the reasons why it can be difficult to understand people uh, from different political perspectives or from different walks of life, is because they have different reference points than you do. And so when you try to conflate something like the cathedral, which is a very specific interpretation of a, we might say, deeper concept that exists beyond that, I think I think I think you I think you tend to bleed. Right, you tend. That's one of the reasons why I talk so much about limit. The ideas bleed together if you're not careful, and I think that's something that occurs when people don't properly think through things. And that's one of the reasons why we talk through ideas here so that we can better understand them. That's the idea of sense making, taking something bare that seems very complex and ephemeral and all over the place, and making it fit into something that's digestible, and but also authentic to what the actual idea is. And for another example of for another example of this anti-fragility, I want to talk a little bit about abortion and school shootings. And I want to talk about these things in terms of as cultural phenomena. So at the end of the last episode, at the end of episode 75 of this show, I I said it was right after the shooting in Buffalo at, at the supermarket. And I said, as we were coming in, because it was at the end of May, beginning of June, start for start to summer, I said, when the weather gets hot, people start shooting. 
Anybody who studies criminology understands understands this point. And set, and and in June, over the course of June, there were multiple mass shootings, including a including a devastating school shooting in the city of Uvalde, as as I'm sure pretty much everybody who listens to this is already aware of. You also had a shooting in Highland Park here outside of Chicago in Indianapolis. And actually, before I get into the analysis, I do want to walk back a little bit something I said when I was on that episode of Kingpilled. Because what one thing that I said is like I'm tired of people talking about Chicago as a war zone. And in what I can only describe as a cruel, dark irony, the, the Highland Park shooting was occurring almost in real time. I think within like 45 minutes of me saying that that comment, that news started to break. And now, so I, so I wanted to put my comments in a better context. One of the reasons why I say that, why I have, I have said that a couple times of, you know, I, I'm tired of people calling Chicago a war zone or always pointing to Chicago has to do with the way that it's used just as a rhetorical talking point, right? It's just a card that you play. When you're playing, when you're when you're playing the game of rhetoric and you're playing the game of political talking points, because Chicago is known for a city that has a lot of shootings, so you know you can always talk about that. That, of course, I, I what I don't want that to take away from is the real hell that people who live on like the west side and the south side, where there is a lot of the gang violence, that that is most of the reason for the shootings that occur. The people who live who have to live under the thumb of those of those warring gangs. Those people, those people do live in a war zone because it is true that most violence is always localized. Even in war zones, people will get up and go to work, as crazy as that sounds. It's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to tease apart. So for somebody, as somebody like myself who's lived here for a long time, right? And I don't live in the city proper, but I've always lived in the Chicagoland area. Everybody has always said, oh, be careful when you go home. Because they don't really understand that you don't, that most people don't live around where the violence occurs. But of course, that doesn't really do anything for the people who do have to live under the violence or for the people like in, High, in Highland Park who suddenly had to deal with a madman shooting. But that's why I want to talk about this in terms of a cultural phenomena, because it wasn't the case that Uvalde and Highland Park just happened in Indianapolis as well. It was the case that one preceded the other and it was the buffalo one in this particular instance i think we can in so far and by the way this is here's the interesting point here in that they are classified by the national media because that's a key point see i chose to call this section cultural phenomenon to kind of give it a um a little more of an academic uh an academic glaze because really it's a ri- i think because i think it's a, i think it's a ritual and I think it's a ritual perpetuated by the media, one of those institutions of the cathedral. Anybody who understands basic mimetic theory understands that, or, mirror, or the idea of mirror neurons knows that, we, that humans are copycats in many respects, right? That's one of the reasons, that's one of the ways we learn things. Like we naturally learn language has to do with copying, our, our, the, copying the adults around us when we were children growing up. That's also how you can like see somebody do something and then like kind of figure out how to do it yourself with a little bit of training. And I think specifically to the school sh- to the school shooting and the mass shooters, it has turned into this semi-ritual and it's this 
really it's it's, it's a very i know it, to say it's a ritual makes will probably make some people think that i'm saying that people enjoy it and by the way i do think that some people at the top enjoy it because you know one thing that drives up the ratings for for the national news are mass shootings like this but i think there's a copycat effect here and we know that a copycat the copycat effect is something studied in criminology so it's something we know occurs so we see something like an event with buffalo where it's kind of weird the person who's the person who's at the center of that and then we see uvalde and then we see the highland park both instances where somebody was Uvalde in particular was was horrific with how many people were killed because he because he attacked a school and we always tend to we we tend to see that with school shootings that they're a lot worse and we also most recently had a we had an almost a ma another massive shooting event in Indianapolis the the story thankfully I guess that's coming now what's what's the initial what's the initial idea if you're an American and you're somebody who's political and you pay attention to the news. Well, this is about the guns, right? Whether you're on the anti-gun or the pro-gun side, well, this, is, this is about the guns. It has to move, it moves into a conversation almost immediately about America's gun culture. Saying that America has more guns than other people, you know, like other, saying that there's more gun shootings that occur in a country like America is like saying that there's more surfers in a place like Hawaii. It's just a fact of the it's just a fact of the matter because we have gun ownership which I think is a good thing because we're we're going to get into why I think gun ownership is a good thing for a country it's natural to fit to it's natural to assume that a country like that is going to have more gun crime There's so many different ways of breaking down this issue and in fact that's one of the things I don't like about it and that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about this in terms of a cultural phenomenon because as soon as a story like this breaks the media whether it's conservative or progressive, whether it's left or right, will jump, will man the ramparts to talk about, to, to give their audience a talking, to the talking points they need. That's what, that's what always happens in a situation like this. And then you have, and then as facts start to come out, the actual story takes shape. And what we've seen, what we've seen, well, let's get into it. Let's get into what we've seen after I talk about the important distinction, looking at my notes, between mass shooting versus a school shooting. Now, I'll give him credit where credit's due. Robbie Suave, who I've criticized in the past, that's why I'm saying, give him credit where it's due. He wrote a good piece in Reason Magazine, one of the few that are still there, talking about how there have been 13 mass school shootings since 1906, not 20, 1966, not 27 in 2022. So this was written, this was written back at the end of May. And so he says, for many people, the Uvalde, Texas mass shooting, which claimed the lives of at least 19 children and two adults, seemed all the more horrible after they learned it was the 27th school shooting so far this year. The fact, that fact makes it harder to view Uvalde as anything, any kind of isolated incident. An NPR article highlighting this statistic has been shared frequently on social media. The headline, 27 school shootings have taken place so far this year, probably gave many readers the impression that gun-related killings in schools have been especially high this year, even before Uvalde. Naturally, the prospect of 26 other previously unnoticed mass shootings in, the in mass shooting events in schools should provoke alarm, and it should also raise eyebrows. 
The problem here is that three very differently defined terms are being used to somewhat incautiously and interchangeably. This is obviously Robbie Suave's words here. School shooting, mass shooting, and mass school shooting. Uvalde, he says, was a mass school shooting. The 26 previous tragedies at school this year were not. The difference is significant. He goes on to say, Education Week, which tracks all school shootings, defines them as incidents in which a person other than a suspect suffers a bullet wound on school property. And so, you know, blah, 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 blah. So this is this is the difference. So here's here's the here's the crux of a story like this, of the idea like this, is that the media uses terms flexibly and interchangeably to create a narrative around it. This is how they exert social control. The confusion, by the way, is part of by the way, is part of it. And that's why I want to talk about this in terms of cultural phenomena, in terms of how both sides can have their talking points. Right? This is almost a ritual that we go through as Americans. We see this just as much. We see this in terms of, of mass shootings, and we also see this with abortion. For a contrast, for a compare and contrast, let's look at Uvalde versus what just occurred in Indianapolis. Now, very, very different situations, right? We're really talking about apples and oranges in certain respects, based in part off this article, but from Ravi Swabi that we were that we were just reading. A mass shooting isn't the same thing as a mass school shooting. A mass shooting is, I think, anybody who's shot within like like three or more people, like the official def FBI statistic is like three or four or more people within like the course of an hour. That's considered a mass shooting. So a mass school shooting is something very different and, and usually horrible because of the lack of security at public schooling and the fact that they're not incentivized to keep the kids safe. I talked about that in the wake of the Oxford school shooting that we heard that we had earlier this year as well where there were clear signs that a child was that a child was unwell and unstable and yet instead of giving him the proper supervision the school let him walk away while they were confronting his parents about it or in parkland where the school safety officer who gets his pension by the way refused to engage the shooter and what did we see happen in uvalde the same damn thing it was the same damn thing that we've seen at every other in, in every other situation. This person was known to police. This person was allowed to enter a school, and this person was allowed to kill. I think in the case of Uvalde, we can say with impunity. It's it's grotesque when you realize as you read through and you look at the security evidence that what does it say here? It says here in this piece, it's almost three minutes before officers arrive in the hallway. And a 77-minute recording captured from this vantage point shows that they sat there for an hour. What does it say here? At 12.51, 45 minutes after the police arrive on scene, four shots are heard and at least a dozen officers move towards the classroom. But they don't make entry. At 12.30, an officer from... An officer wearing a helmet and ballistic vest pauses to squirt hand sanitizer from the wall. 12.41, 12.50, on and on they go. And the gunman killed in that time frame. This has been turned, this has very clearly been shown to be not an issue of firearms, but an issue of cowardice. Issue of cowardice on the part of the person leading the scene in Uvalde. 
you can blame the, you can blame the rank and file, and I don't blame people for doing that. But there's something to be said for the person in charge deserves a much higher share of that blame because they're the ones that countermanded the rule. And that's very different from what we just saw that occurred in Indianapolis. See, in Indianapolis, a citizen saw a gunman, took action, and took out that gunman. And I have this story from The Blaze that says, initially it was reported that this guy was like two minutes. And it was actually like, well, hang on, let me actually read the story. Yeah, that he neutralized the killer in 15 seconds. A man with a concealed carry permit was able to take out a gunman who was probably going to kill other people in 15 seconds. Whereas an armed tactical team of trained officers waited for hours before they made entrance. And they let kids die because of it. And we don't react as a society and say, what's, what's wrong with the people in power that an average citizen can take care of a threat in 18 seconds, but the people that are trained to handle this don't? No, no, no. Instead, instead the people listen to their, to their betters and they understand that we have to have an argument about whether or not people should own guns, own firearms of a certain type and caliber. Let's pretend for the sake of example, let's pretend for a moment. We're just gonna, we're gonna indulge ourselves in a fantasy here and we're gonna pretend for just a moment that we lived in a country where good-natured people were still, were, were the ones disagreeing instead of the bad guys being the ones in charge. See, in a country like that, I would think despite the political differences, Someone like the President of the United States who would bother to comment on other, school, on other mass shootings would praise the person who heroically stopped one from, from, from progressing. And to my knowledge, the gentleman, um, what's his name? Elijah Dick, Dickin? This gentleman was able to, this gentleman is not, has not been praised by the President. We see this again repeated with abortion. So we now live in a country where Roe v. Wade, is, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And I, and I don't care what side you come down on this. I mean, I do, but it doesn't actually matter what side you come down on for this if you care about the law, because if you care about the law, you understand that this was poor legal. This was poor law from the beginning. And it's kind of interesting just how poor of law Roe v. Wade was and how no, 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 no one at the federal level bothered to protect abortion, quote-unquote, until Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now, there are some people who will say that Roe v. Wade is a way to try and you know, placate the right. And, you know, there might be an element of that. I don't know. But certainly it's the right thing. It was the right decision to make. And all it did was return the question to the states. But we, don't, but we didn't see that reaction, did we? No, we saw the reaction as if they were taking it away from everybody and that nobody was ever going to be able to get any kind of abortion again. And in fact, we're seeing an expanding definition of abortion. They're, they're conflating miscarriages with abortion now, and they're doing that purposefully. The reason for a lot of this is... 
the reason I've talked about this idea before, right? I've talked about this idea of the cult of American democracy. The cult of American democracy is the way, is the system, is the democratic system that the elites use to exert their control over the population. It's a system where neighbor and neighbor, brother and brother are given their marching orders to argue points to a pointless fruition because that's what that's kind of what democracy is about. See, the cult of American democracy is, well, and, and in fact, some of this is the incentive of democracy and perhaps natural, right? This game of inches. So this political phenomenon whereby media and political elites exert social control Eat, under this system, each side feels morally validated in their opinion. When, when, a, when a topic, when a news event occurs, each side is given what I've called marching orders in the past and talking points. And over time, these talking points become rote, right? So they become ingrained in your psyche to where you don't even remember where they come from. The structural formations allow for this fight to perpetuate, and each side plays a game of inches. And what we're basically seeing is that for the first time in a number of years, there's been a minor, minor win by the quote-unquote right or conservative movement, the pro-life people, right? It's, it's a minor improvement that Roe v. Wade is overturned, and so now, this, now, now it becomes a state's rights issue. It's a minor improvement for the pro-life argument. And in fact, what we're going to find is that most of these pro-life states are going to adopt some sort of abortion legislation that's still going to allow for the ending of a pregnancy outside of the religious definition, which, which, in, the Catholic, which, which in the Catholic sense is regarded as the moment of a conception. You're going to see heartbeat bills put into place to where, again, you can still go and, you can still go and get an abortion even in a pro-life state. But you wouldn't have you wouldn't have believed that if you were just watching, if you were reading the mainstream press or a lot of the rhetoric around it on the left. And certainly, certainly you wouldn't, certainly if you were just certainly you you would have thought that it was something that changed for the entire world, as this video that I have here from uh, from France shows. So this video in France that I'm playing right now. Well, I don't really speak French, but the point being, these are people in France protesting the overturning of Roe v. Wade. See? Now, now suddenly we're talking about things in terms of bodily autonomy. And if you're, if you're listening, you know, if you're, you might get lost in the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy is the point. And that's, and that's also a point of the cult of American democracy, is this idea that we have hypocrisy at the base of what, what I would call the left, the, the, the chaotic left, uses to exert social control. You need to remember, another idea that I've talked about is how the moral center has now split. And the other idea that I want to leave you with is to remind you that O is for oligarchy. See, the cult of American democracy is just a mask 
for the oligarchic control underneath it. And this has been studied, right? We've gone, we've gone, through, the, we've gone through the article on this show about it. When you, one thing I do in the show is show is point out the cracks in the wall. Because I think the next 10 years are, go, are, are critical for the future of human society. And I think we need to look closely at the ways that we organize ourselves as a society, the institutions we use, the method by which we try to affect political change. And I don't think pretending the cult of a, I don't think it's worth pretending that the cult of American democracy is going to protect the rights of the unborn, for example, or the rights of gun owners. Because the cult of, the cult of American democracy is a veneer for the left, chaotic left oligarchic control over America, and you can argue the entire globalist world. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to follow me on all social media at the LB Moniz. If you like what you heard today, go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Moniz, and I am not one with the woke.